Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar, Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt, and we'll do our best to answer them live. It's my pleasure to introduce my co-host, Ray Wong. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and ZDNet. And in my humble opinion, one of the top futurists to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray, to Disrupt TV. Hey, thanks a lot. I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Ashar. He's the number one follower you can follow in terms of being a CMO, CIOs, and CEOs looking for business advice, insights. More importantly, he's on business television and author himself. And more importantly, here to interview our first guest. So who do we have today? Or do we need any intros? I, you know, we don't need any intros, but I'm so proud because I've reduced Tom's bio to just a half a page. So bear with me, please, for the next minute. <laughs> Tom Peters is the co-author of Search of, in, in Search of Excellence, the book that changed the way the world does business and often tagged as the best business book ever. Tom is the author of 18 books that sold more than 10 million copies around the world. His most recent effort is The Excellence Dividend, which was my highest book recommendation of 2018. And Let's hear what others have said about Tom and his 18 books. The New Yorker, in no small measure, American corporations have become what Peters encouraged them to be. Fortune Magazine, we live in Tom Peters' world. CNN, while most business gurus milk the same mantra for all it's worth, the one man brand called Tom Peters is still reinventing himself. Tom received the Thinker's 50 Lifetime Achievement Award. This recognition celebrates the fact that Tom has delivered over 2,500 keynotes to over 5 million, that's million, people around 67 countries and all 50 states. Along the way, that means he's traveled nearly 8,000 flights covering 5 million miles. His life's work is about educating and inspiring current and future business leaders by delivering a masterclass on humanity and how you can live a recommendable life. All of Tom's written speech material covering the last 15 plus years is available to download for free, for free, talk about generosity, at tompeters.com and excellencenow.com. In addition, Tom has tweeted over 112,400 times, talk about commitment and being accessible and reachable. His, he's the reason why I am on Twitter. He's also my highest recommendation follow on Twitter at Tom underscore Peters, welcome Tom to Disrupt TV. Holy smokes, that's a uh, that's a, that's a real <laughs> mouthful. Uh, I am thrilled to be here with you. I incredibly enjoyed our time about a year or so ago in the Boston studio, uh, and now I am particularly excited to be here because, and maybe this sounds arrogant. The stuff that I have cared about without a break for the last 43 years, suddenly in the world of COVID-19, the protests and so on, is actually more important than it has been before. In some ways, it's really it's, ridiculous. Oh, you know, I, I said to somebody, I've got all these degrees, business degrees, engineering degrees from Stanford and Cornell. But if you want to understand my message, the educational certificate that you need 
is a signed graduation certificate from the fourth grade. <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, and it's really the case. It's, well, and it's a perfect example because I remember my fourth grade teacher from Annapolis, Maryland, wow. and the way that she paid attention to us. And obviously, even though it was the olden days and she slapped us with rulers, she clearly loved every single one of us. And that's not an exaggeration. And it is the, and maybe it was from her whom I learned. I don't know. But the magic today is people who give a damn about people. And we can talk about various bits and pieces of it, not least of which is assuming we get back to employing people, which it looks today like maybe that's the case. Uh, never, ever, 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 ever hire any living human being for any job who does not have a high EQ and do not ever, 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 ever promote anybody to any position who does not have a sky high EQ. And, and you know, thinking of you guys and Salesforce and so on as a tech company, if you say, I really only want people with high EQs, it does not mean that you're passing on shockingly talented tech people. You know, there's a guy by the name of Peter Miller who runs a uh, biotech company called Optinos. And his one-liner, which I used, was, we only hire nice people. <laughs> and he said, some of the degrees required to work for me, you know, you can't even pronounce the name of the degree. But he said, guess what? There are a whole lot of people actually in the world who have an advanced microbiology degree. Don't hire the jerks. Mm. No, that's a great point. And, you know, when we think about what's been going on here, like in some ways, 1965 to 1970 have all passed in a few weeks. We're back in space. We've got social unrest. It's a bit chaotic. Leaders have no idea what to expect. Uh, I mean, what, what, should, what should we start with? Well, the three of us were talking about this a little bit before we went on air. We should start with honesty and humility. Hmm. And honesty and humility, in part, let's make all three of us leaders of some size, of, well, not a sizable institution, an institution of six or 600. I don't care. The opening words are, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. Let's experiment and move forward. Because no living human being today does know what they're doing. And humility is incredibly important. Uh, God, I just, I don't know what the heck to say. Uh, it's be human, care about people. Uh, I don't get people who don't care about people. And unfortunately, in these last couple of months, we've seen a whole lot of people who were, look, I totally, absolutely weep for the 20-person restaurant 20 table restaurant owner and his business is dried up and he totally has to pay attention to the financials and so on. But in the 2006 crash, there's someone I work with, a woman who is CEO of a middle-sized company. And for the first time in their 30-year history, they had to lay people off. And I remember talking to somebody about, Christine is her first name, Christine laying people off. And they said she was so emotional, so gentle, so caring that by the end of the interview, she was in tears and the person who had just been laid off was hugging her 
and saying it's going to be okay, Christine. That's the person I want running my accounting department or training department or factory or restaurant or whatever it is, being human. I want to read you guys something in a couple of minutes and you know you can tell me when I can do it. Only take can I take a couple of minutes? Oh, jump in now. Jump in now. Please, please. Okay. This came across I mean, I don't remember if it was started in Twitter or not. There is a community college in Boardman, Oregon called Blue Mountain Community College. And about a month ago or six weeks ago, they sent a memo around to all of their employees who were now working at home. And it had six points on it, very short. I'm going to read them very quickly. One, you are not, quote, working from home, unquote. You are at your home during a crisis trying to work. Two, your personal physical, mental, and emotional health is extremely important right now. Take care of yourself. Three, you should not try to compensate for lost productivity by working longer hours. Four, be kind to yourself and don't judge how you are coping based on how you see others coping. Five, be kind to others and don't judge others in how they are coping based on how you are coping. Six, success will not be measured the same way it was when things are normal. And, and I, I just, it's, it's beautiful. It's pure art. Shakespeare couldn't have done as well. But it's that attitude. Yeah, it's, it's, it's absolutely, it's absolutely, by the way, Ray, can I just say, we could just sit here and have Tom read to us and I would be completely <laughs> fulfilled for the entire segment. That was beautiful. Well, listen, it, now that you've said that, Val, I'm going to do one more thing, which isn't reading. Okay. <laughs> okay. And, I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> this is, uh, something like 36 hours ago. Uh, I am indeed near New Bedford, Massachusetts. Textile capital, whale oil capital has come upon some hard times in the last number of decades, even though it's in the midst of recovering nicely, which may or may not be stopped by this drug problems and so on. So let me tell you what the local newspaper said about our New Bedford, town of 90,000, not peanuts, New Bedford police chief 48 hours ago. There were protesters. He goes out to where the protesters are. He's got his cop uniform on, but no Star Wars crap with flak vests and all that sort of thing. Goes out to where the protesters are. First thing he does is get down on his knee. Second thing he does is say, these protests make incredible sense. What happened in Minnesota is absolutely contemptible and disgusting. I am here to support you. The next thing he does is he marches with the protesters for a while. And he's talking to a protester, and, th and this is the part that's unreal. He said, look, <laughs> I've done my best at selecting my police officers, but upon occasion, they may do something that goes a little bit over the line. He said, if you see any of my officers doing something, going over the line, get a hold of me immediately and talk to me immediately. He said, I'm not beloved by all of my cops because our standard, standard for civil behavior is just over the roof. I mean, 
Good Lord. And I mean, the, pr the problem, and we've already alluded to it, is it's a wonderful thing and a wonderful disposition, but it's not rocket science. It does not require either of my Cornell engineering degrees or either of my Stanford business degrees. It requires having had a good mom and a good fourth grade <laughs> teacher and a bunch of stuff like that. And uh, it's, a, it's, I mean, a, it's honestly, a great point. But, but how do you train really... for EQ? Like, can you train for EQ? Like, you know, we can see it. We, we have it there. Can we train people to have better EQ? I'm not sure I'm going to use that word, Ray, but we'll, we'll want, wobble around it. First, I should hire for it. Let's get that out of the way. I think if we have an institution which is really thoughtful, caring, and people first, I think a lot of lower EQ people will come around. Yeah. Um, and maybe we can help them a little bit with some training programs. I mean, maybe one of the things, and you know, thinking about you guys and tech, uh, maybe we can hook some of these people if they're techie-like on hard-nosed psychological and social psychological research. You know, it's just out there. Uh, you know, there's hard-nosed, good as anything that's ever come out of a uh, pharmacy lab, hard-nosed research that says positive reinforcement is 30 times more powerful than negative reinforcement. Maybe we can sell that as a quant thing. Incidentally, I've got to take another one of those two-second breaks. Uh, uh, Val, you said nice things about the excellence dividend, but frankly, I'm totally pissed off that I didn't find an article until after the book was out that I would love to have had. It's, uh, it's an article that is titled Google's Big Surprise. And Google did a study of their top employees. And what they discovered was the top seven attributes of the top Google employees were all soft stuff. Listen, yeah. respect, and a whole bunch of stuff like that. Then they looked at their most innovative teams. And if I understand the deal, Google does one of those things that I think is purely disgusting, and you are classified as an A player or a B player, which is a brilliant way to demotivate forever 50% of your employees. At any rate, on the team thing, the B teams wildly out-innovated the A teams. And for the same reason, seven soft factors like listening, paying attention. I mean, I look, I'm a 20-year, 30-year Silicon Valley person and went to Stanford, so I'm allowed to say rude things. I can, I have this <laughs> image in my mind of the Stanford 2018 computer science grad with an IQ of 642, well aware of the fact that he is the smartest human being that God has not put on earth, but in the entire effing universe. He's not a particularly good listener. <laughs> you know, you gotta be down around whatever to have that happen. But I just, yeah, exactly. But I mean, it's, it's just fabulous. And the, you know, the, 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 the soft factors won and they won it. Google, I don't know whether Google's done anything about it since then, but. I mean, I particularly love that because it, it doesn't allow techies any place to hide. And I'm not going to get off on my other things like how disgusted I am with the book Brotopia. 
about Silicon Valley, which I hope you guys didn't read because well, you well, can well, only read thing. it if you, you have a barf back. Uh, you were in Silicon just... Valley and Stanford for a while. Like, how did you lose your passive aggressiveness? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, I, I get, I get branded me, as being aggressive you. and direct. <laughs> let me tell you my, my Stanford secret. My PhD thesis advisor, uh, son of an Albany cop, graduated from SUNY Albany at the age of 18, got his PhD in psychological statistics from the University of Chicago at the age of 21. I mean, holy shit. Wow. You know, that's not a little pissant school like Stanford, that's Chicago. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, it was, it was, it was a wonderful exercise in humility. Well, well, my problem, Ray, to try and answer your question is I'm not talking about complicated stuff. Uh, and, and the part that I love because of that MBA is long term, if you take care of people and do those soft things, you make a lot of money. You know, there was a study done uh, uh, that was reported by McKinsey, uh, and they, I mean, the, the worst thing that's happened in the United States of America is when Milton Friedman invented shareholder value maximization. Mm. I mean, that was the kiss of death, fundamentally. Mm. At any rate, this big McKinsey study, huge McKinsey study, uh, looked at the long-term investing companies versus the short-term investing companies. And the short-termers over a 20-year period just destroyed the long-termers. I think I said it back. The long-termers totally destroyed the short-termers in terms of financial returns, jobs created, and every other darn thing. There's, you know, if, if I was Dante, I would create a 10th ring in hell for Friedman. <laughs> I, uh... and I'm not going to say what I'm about to say. I might throw Zuckerberg in there with him just for the hell of it. <laughs> well, let's look at it. No. We, have, we have Facebook. <laughs> we, we might. We might. <laughs> I want to make an observation before I ask the question, and that is, uh, you know, you can see how the greatest teachers are lifelong students, and I would love to have had the opportunity to watch you climb that ladder behind you to get to the books to the top shelf. It's, it's just amazing to see. You're surrounded by uh, all this, you know, all these books, but you spend so much time and energy teaching others, including myself and Ray, every day on social platforms. And we thank you for that. So that's my comment. I love the ladder. I love to see you climbing it and getting to those top books. But I want to talk about something that I haven't experienced in my adults or in my life in, in my lifetime. And we, we talked about this at the beginning. So there is a health crisis T today. We cross 110,000 deaths in the U.S. Yeah. That's tens of millions of families that have lost loved ones. So there's a failure for us to protect our citizens, and we can talk about that separately, but there's a crisis there, and it's ongoing. There's an economic crisis. Some good news today, but there's still 40 million people that filed for unemployment. That number means that every one of us on this call knows someone personally who lost a job. It's just not a number anymore. It's affecting us emotionally, psychologically, because we have friends and family that have lost jobs. There's an environmental crisis in that we're going to have to feed 2 billion plus people by the end of this decade, 10 billion from 7.7. .7. So the wars of the future may be over water and food. And there's these megacities defined by 10 million or more that will be 50 plus 
by the end of this decade. So the environmental piece is still top of mind. There's a race crisis. We saw a murder on, 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 on video. And, uh, you know, frankly, I'm ashamed of it. And, and, and I, you know, as an immigrant refugee, I, I just, I, I, I know this country is better. I know the people are better. Um, but but it's, it's just shameful what we saw. And then the last thing is there's a global leadership crisis, meaning we are witnessing divisiveness. We're witnessing dishonesty, uninformed uh, decision-making process, irrelevant uh, content, and, and, and at the highest levels, at the highest levels. So the combination of these crises leads to a trust deficit. And if I use Rachel Botsman's definition of trust, who authored the book, Who Do We Trust? And she said, trust is competence plus character. And she said, competence is reliability plus capability, the hard stuff. And, and character is integrity plus benevolence, your motivation and intention for why you do what you do, the soft stuff. Given the crisis deficit, given the hard stuff uh, is easy and soft stuff is hard, what advice do you have to young entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs who are minority, women, black, immigrants, in terms of helping heal our nation and trying to figure out how we can address this trust deficit that we're all hurting from? Well, and some people have commented on this relative, particularly let's take the color thing, and in particular African-Americans. I assure you that I am not going to be the white guy on this show giving advice relative to African-Americans. I'm part of the problem more than I am the solution. So we'll you know, put that one aside. I happen to be working in Washington at the Pentagon in 1968 when we had the Martin Luther King Jr. assassination and riots. I've been through this before. Uh, anybody who would give you a three-sentence answer to that question ought to be taken out to the backyard and whipped. Uh, You're the best. You really are. Well, You're so, you are, the radical transparency and the wisdom you have is second to none. You're right. I don't, I don't have the answer to that question. <laughs> yeah. Just, well, I was hoping you would. <laughs> but, but, you know, my unrealistic, unrealistic expectations. Yeah. Unfortunately, Val, oh, you just did that laundry list, and Ray and I are going to go outside after this and shoot ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, my it's, my it's wife's going to be irritated about that, or at least I hope she will be. Yeah. Uh, Uh, Maybe one answer is vote in November. Brilliant. Bingo. Absolutely positive. <laughs> but it's not just we're looking for those answers, right? We're, we're looking for people to be a bit more patient, people to be a little bit more passionate, right? People to be a little bit more open-minded, to listen, to have those dialogues. We haven't had a chance to have a breather. I mean, we, yeah. we've gone uh, from one crisis after the other in such a short period of time. I think the aliens are testing us. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, something is going on, you know? It's, it's, something is off. That's, that's all I can say. The, the, only, the <laughs> only thing that I don't know whether it makes children like the two of you feel better or not. Uh, <laughs> but King, the King riots were 68. And amazingly enough, I don't remember when Kent State was, but Kent State was kind of like Lafayette Square. It was soldiers shooting kids. Uh, we went through 20 consecutive years of shit. 
we went through uh, race stuff, and then by the time that was alleviated a teeny bit, we went through Vietnam. So we do have some history of surviving these things. I mean, I know what you guys have to help me. I know what part of my answer is, but I'm not entirely happy with it. Hmm. In the context of what each of the three of us does in the course of a given day, uh, first at some level, be thoughtful, care, take care of your family, take care of your 82-year-old grandmother who lives across the road, take care of the close community stuff. Uh, and don't let anybody, if you are lucky enough to be employed, don't let anybody bully you into not taking all the time you need. I do want to say one thing to all of our leaders who are listening, and this is a very rude remark, albeit not with rude language. Ms. or women will react, do all this stuff better. Mr. Leader, what you have done in the last two months and what you will do in the next two months will define who you are as an adult human being. Wow. And remember that, how you behave, the degree to which you were helpful, the degree to which you were thoughtful. This is you. This is the moment. It ain't coming twice in that regard. Uh, and, and I feel so, so, so very strongly about that. I'm, you know, I'm 77 and I said, I only have one judgment for my life. Can I walk past a mirror without barfing? <laughs> and uh, there's, a, there's a wonderful column written by New York Times columnist David Brooks. And he said, there are two kinds of virtues, resume virtues mm. and eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are graduated from Stanford, promoted four times by the age of 29, net worth of XXXXX. The eulogy virtues are obviously what people say about you at the funeral. Mm -hmm. And what they say about you at the funeral are, in a word, how did he, she treat people? I just said something that popped out of my mouth in the middle of that statement that I want to come back to. Mm -hmm. uh, admittedly, the sample is small. But nations led by women have done better with COVID than the yes. boy nations. Yes. And one of my strongest beliefs, and I'm going to leave the racial aside for a minute. One of my strongest beliefs is more women CEOs. There was yes. that famous Melinda Gates quote about there are more CEOs in the Fortune 500 named James than there are women. Yes. And, you know, that's just a disgrace. I, I made a comment on Twitter, Vala. There's no reason you would have necessarily been following it. And it was after something went wacko at a hospital. And I said, here is the law that I'm going to ask Congress to pass. No more male hospital CEOs <laughs> ever. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, the <laughs> fact of the matter is, and, you know, there, there are central tendencies and there are guys that listen and there are women that don't listen. But the human attributes, uh, women tend to 
be better at it than we boys are. Yes. Uh, and I, I really, really so desperately want to see the number of senior women just go up and go through the roof. Uh, yeah. It's better than it was at some level, but a long, long, long. I mean, here's hard science, which is fascinating. We say women are more people oriented. Well, guess when that starts? Well, from a measurable standpoint, three days. There was yeah. this fabulous neurobiological research that was done. And by day three after birth, girl babies are making five times more eye contact <laughs> than boy babies. And all these variables we've talked about, aren't they de facto eye, yeah. eye contact variables? Absolutely. Absolutely. Getting inside and paying attention to you. I want to follow up uh, the comments you're making. First, I want our listeners to go to TomPeters.com and read what I call the most beautiful manifesto titled Content, the 27 Number Ones. Please take time and read and reread until you've memorized the manifesto. But in the manifesto, Tom actually calls this out, uh, number 14 in the manifesto, and it's not in any particular order, could be number one. Uh, leadership uh, teams must, capital uh, quotation around must, put women in charge. Now, in the manifesto, it reads Business Week. As leaders, women rule. The new study found that female managers outshine their manager counterparts on almost every measure. Harvard Business Review cites women are rated higher in fully 12 of the 16 competencies that go in outstanding leadership. So there's science behind this. But here's my question, and you referenced Melinda Gates. Melinda Gates uh, cited a World Economic Forum study that said it will take 200 years for pay parity, where women are paid the same as men for the same work, 200 years. So unfortunately, none of us three are going to witness pay parity. So why are women not paid the same as men for equal work? Common sense. What, what is the what is the cultural? What is the what is your parents, your school teachers, your early managers in your career? What has led to this acceptance that we don't pay for the same work? You know, Vala, my daughter's going to. Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Your daughter and my daughter are going to. Come on. Yeah. I, I have two daughters. But, you know, I don't want to use the excuse of I'm a father of two daughters. I mean, it, it just doesn't. Well, you know, it, I mean, one, just, th one thing, which is not an answer, but it is that uh, exactly 60 days from now, uh, we will celebrate the 100th anniversary of women getting the right to vote. That's right. The passage of the 19th Amendment, which was That's August right. the 18th, uh, 1920. That's right. uh, and that's a disgrace that that happened so late. Uh, and at that time, it didn't include black women voters. Absolutely. So absolutely. it was and an income. A couple of yeah. other qualifiers, too, yeah. uh, Val. I'm not. Yeah. Uh, of property ownership, land, you know, the usual yeah. stuff. I mean, it wasn't well, true universal suffrage. So, the, you know. The, the only, this is a stupid statement to call it good news because I think men are not all awful, almost all of us, but not all of us. Uh, the women share of graduates in the U.S. has gone through the roof. Yeah, uh, little Same signs medical of school. project, Same with of medical progress. Yeah. I am a Cornell civil engineer, class of 1965, which means I matriculated in 1960. 
I got my quarterly Cornell Engineering magazine six or eight months ago, two women on the cover. One of the women, my age, was the only woman out of 800 matriculants in my class who was a woman. One for 800. The wonderfully youthful face on the other side of the cover was a young woman who is class of 2022 and the entering class of Cornell, which is a damn good engineering school, the entering class of Cornell Engineering School, 51% women. Wow, bravo, bravo. Wow, awesome. I, that's a big I literally te- Yeah, I literally teared up. And you see the books behind me. If I did a 180 flip with my screen, you would see that I cut, that I tore off the cover <laughs> of my Cornell Engineering magazine and, and put it on the, the wall. I, I want to do one other I I, we're sure running out of time, Tom, and, and, and I wanted years. to thank. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, please. No, I just want to tell one tiny little yes. people story. Uh, we are, what's today, the fifth or the sixth? Fifth. 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 Tomorrow is the 76th anniversary of the D Day landing. On the 5th of June, 1944, the commander of British troops, uh, Field Marshal Montgomery, it is said, gave one of the most roaring, incredible speeches to his officer corps, never to be matched. The same night, the commander of the entire alliance, Dwight David Eisenhower, I'm sorry, I can't tell this straight, guys. Dwight David Eisenhower, with his little jacket with no medals, went down to the beach, put his arm around soldiers, walked up and down the beach and wished them Godspeed. Now, that's not even the punchline. They, this was reported in a book, I think, by Michael Corda. Somebody got a hold of a, of a diary and it was describing Eisenhower. And it said, Eisenhower's identity with his soldiers were such that parents were willing to send their boys to die for him. And they were willing to die for Ike. You can't, none of the three of us can be Eisenhower, but isn't that exactly what we have talked about since the minute that the camera went on in some form or other? Uh, One guy gives a speech and the other guy puts his arm around you. And, you know, the guy who put his arm around you, yes, he is a four-star general who graduated from West Point. And they said, incidentally, when Eisenhower was at West Point, there's a, there's a magazine, it may not even exist, called Arms, Armchair General, that his secret was he made a lot of friends at West Point. <laughs> and his life success was as a coalition commander. You know, Patton did his Patton thing, and Eisenhower held the whole world together, the coalition together kept the Brits and the French and the Americans, as I like to say, as I like to say, he kept the Americans and the Brits from killing each other before they had time to go across the channel and start going after <laughs> Germans. But that, a- that role, we, you know, Eisenhower, I mean, I was, you know, born in Maryland and I can't give all the credit for Eisenhower to having born in the Midwest, in the Midwest, but that's Midwest for you. you know, that one, I love that wonderful one-liner. What is Chicago? 
New York without the attitude. And, <laughs> and the thing about this, it, it's kind of true. But a lot you, of good you talked about all the, country, the grand so. problems, and every single word you said was true. But let's behave well as individuals starting now. Yeah. And let's hold ourselves to a just incredible standard of thoughtfulness. And Let's we can't make poverty go away. We can't make racial discrimination go away. Uh, but if we're kind, you know, I think it's, uh, oh my God, Henry James or William James. William James has one of the yeah. best quotes ever. There are three things that are important in human life. The first one is to be kind. The second one is to be kind. And the third one is to be kind. And my goal, Vala and Ray, is I want that to be the business school and engineering school and law school motto. The professional schools, and I've got four degrees from two of them, stink. And they stink, including my alma mater, Stanford, and they stink, including my alma mater, Cornell, both of which have done amazing things for me. But I, I was teaching a class in New Zealand to a bunch of Chinese kids who were transitioning from a tech education into becoming a project manager. And, and the thing about it, take those kids. Uh, if you're talented and graduate with that engineering degree, you're only going to be a line worker for the first 36 months. And yeah. at the end of 24, 36, or maybe 12 months, you're going to become a project manager. And suddenly, well, the entire focus of your life is helping people. Right. And it doesn't Be make kind. a damn bit of difference whether you can write a jillion lines of code or right. two lines of code. Uh, I'm a damn good coder in my early days. <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we are here with Tom Peters, <laughs> author of The Search of Excellence. His words, be kind. Follow him on Twitter at Tom underscore Peters. Tom is our keynote speaker at Constellation Connected Enterprise 2020. We intend on having the event, Tom. We'll figure out how you want to get there. And, uh, you know, thank you for sharing your wisdom, your words. Uh, any last thoughts, Vala? Can we do this every week? <laughs> it was so good. It was well, so, I'm telling you, master class on humanity. Master class well, in humanity. It takes three to tango. We did this before, we're doing it now, and this is a this is a conversation among three colleagues who we all actually care a hell of a lot about each other. And I didn't come on this for your audience. I came on this to see you two guys. I'm humbled by your words. We are so humbled. Thank you very much. Once again, Tom Peters, uh, and thank you so much for being here. So happy thank Friday. you, sir. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Ray, I'm a better person because of that last interview, and I'm going to be even a better person <laughs> with the next, our next interview. Yeah, good luck, Michael. Follow Tom Peters. <laughs> like, I'm just telling you about that. Like, about that. Like, like, that, that right. why, why would we do that to anyone? But if there's anyone that can hit a grand slam in the bottom of the ninth, it's Michael. Uh, it's it is Michael. <laughs> it, is, it is our privilege. To He's faced <laughs> bigger adversity than this in his he past. He has. Um, yeah. Yeah. Hi, Michael. We want you to follow one of the living icons of, of the business world. But Mike, Michael J. Sikorsky, CEO and co-founder of Robots and Pencil, has done remarkable 
uh, and seemingly impossible things throughout his career. In 2009, uh, he founded, co-founded Robots and Pencils. In fact, he's the robot in the Robots and Pencils with uh, Contarian, then Contarian view that mobile would be more transformative uh, than the internet. And we've learned a lesson 11 years after the fact what Michael knew. His company, listen to this number, Ray, ridiculous. His, his company grew by 4,800% in the first five years being named the 34 fastest growing company in North America, Canada, U.S. combined. Uh, Robots and Pencils has become a trusted partner to some of the world's most uh, innovative companies. You have over 250 apps with nearly 80 million users. Uh, it, it just, just stunning. He was named uh, 50 most influential people in Canada. If Tom Peters lived in Canada, he may have been bumped to 51. His, 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 he guest lectures at Harvard Business, at MIT, at the World Economic Forum. So the biggest brains in the world want to hear what Michael has to say. Ernest Young named him the Entrepreneur of the Year. And he's another amazing follow because he's so active on Twitter and listening, learning, and, and helping us uh, at, uh, I'm going to read, it's M-J-S-I-K-O-R-S-K-Y. Welcome, Michael, to Disrupt TV. Oh, thank you for having me so much. And thanks for sending me up after Tom Peters. Really <laughs> We're never going to live this one down. The next time we have the Pope as a guest, we're going to have you come. <laughs> yeah, that's oh right. Gosh, Don't worry about that. It. The Pontiff was... and then Sikorsky. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. It'll be amazing. <laughs> He'll be holier you than guys, a man. That, that, was a great, that was a great interview. I was a pleasure to, to watch it. It was Thank awesome you. hearing you guys all talk with Tom. Thank you, sir. Well, hey, you know, you've been talking about something really hot, and, and this is so important because people don't understand the level of sophistication, the level of automation that is about to happen. And this notion of permissionless organizations is something that blows people's minds because today the interactions are in front of you. The interactions are physical. The interactions are there, right? And we're about to make that shift where it goes from human-led to, ooh, what just happened? Right. So let's talk about permissionless organizations. Yeah, no, totally. Thanks for the setup there. I, I think it's so cool because AIs don't ask for permission. Right. Hmm. And then I also think that the next generation of talent aren't ready to ask for permission either. Hmm. Right. And so from my, our perspective, we think kind of if you think we're in the fourth industrial revolution and then, Ray, I'm pretty sure it's in your book. You talked about how first you have the technology that comes to disrupt, but then you have to disrupt inside your business model. I argue that underneath that you have to disrupt in your organizational design, right? And so I think, yeah, I think in permissionless organizations, we're thinking about whole new ways of organizational design. So let's expand on that. Uh, you know, uh, there are trailblazer leaders like yourself that believe that the, the org design is, is the competitive advantage um, and how you adopt a beginner's mindset, how you have ability to build an organization that's structured for movement in order to achieve optimal speed. If you, uh, if you um, watch uh, elite four by 100 athletes uh, compete, the first leg of the race is typically one to one and a half second longer than the other three legs because the runner starts at rest, whereas the other three are in motion before a baton is handed to them. And in the elite running world, one, one and a half second delay is about 10, 11 meter distance. It's first place to 100 place difference. So positioning your organization and building it for movement is how you achieve optimal speed. Can you talk about org structure that allows you to stay relevant and agile and adaptive 
and ultimately able to co-create value at the speed of need. One of the things I noticed with robots and pencils, other than the fact you hire some of the goddamn best, smartest people in not just mobile development, but just design thinking and, and they understand business and finance and they're such a well-versed group is that you're able to create beautiful things that allow for optimal movement and speed in companies. How does the org structure impact that? Yeah, so one, I'll just think, I think there's three KPIs in a permissionless organization. And so the first is speed of decisions, mm. which is really trust, right? If you go back to Tom, it, it's all trust, right? And then the second KPI is judgment, because what you're really saying is all the talent that work there, you want to grow their judgment. In fact, if people said to me, what's the secret KPI inside Robots and Pencils? It's the speed at which we grow the talent's judgment. And then the third KPI, I think, is measuring entrepreneurial thinking. Oh, and so, things. and then, and then, and the way that we kind of execute that inside our org design is to think about this concept of snow melts from the edges, which is a, a sentence from Andy Grove. So, how do you push as much of the decision rights to the edge of the organization, and then how do you follow that talent that will lead you there? And then, if you take the trend line of exponential technology, how could anyone top down plan this? So you kind of even have this org as machine in the 1900s to org as organism today as well, right? Mm. And so I think it's all, it's actually the most natural way to do it because I also think humans are poor substitutes for robots. And as we shift from the third industrial revolution to the fourth industrial revolution, we want humans to be even more uniquely human, right? More than still like a BPO or job function role. I'm going to just follow up on that. Andy Grove also said a healthy dose of uh, 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 not uncertainty, uh, uh, sense paranoia, of paranoia. paranoia. Yeah, paranoia. paranoia. A, a healthy paranoia. dose of paranoia is a good thing. So, how do you, again, CEO of a company that grew by 5,000% in five years, how did you ensure there was sense of urgency at all levels, including the edge of robots and pencils? How, how do you cultivate that? that, that and by the way, I think it's a superpower to have paranoia and be at peace of mind at the same time. I think it's a superpower. So how did you do that? How did you do that? <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really good question. I think I think the credit really goes with the talent. If you think about it, if you if you say you're going to build an org, the way that I thought about it from the very beginning was I want to be a racetrack designer. I don't want to build a racetrack for Ferraris. And the talent that I want to bring into the into our house, our Ferraris. And I want to be the first org or the first racetrack that lets them get out of first gear. Because if you look in the typical corporate architecture, everyone's getting gate kept or stage gate everywhere. So first gear, they finally get going and they actually can't, they can't shift down. So I think, I think it's actually this recognition that the talent is actually going to lead you into the future rather than you're going to lead yourself into the future. And yeah. so, you know, just to point out a moment of, you know, humility, I would never want to work for the 23 year old version of myself. Because a 23-year-old version of myself that started a company, I kind of designed it top down like I was a key, the key person, mm. right? Like everything should route through me. And mm. by the time I started Robots and Pencils, I realized, well, actually, all the answers are in the talent. So how do you lay down infrastructure such that the talent can lead you to the future? And you, as management or the racetrack designers, can get out of the way. 
That's wow. a very, very important point, wow. right? When we think about war and war design, right? What Napoleon did versus everyone else was speed up the decision chain. And the ability to move faster on the decisions allow him to win his wars, right? Now, when we take that to the AI example, and I'm gonna steal this from my friend Snehal Antani, if he's listened to it, he's got a new startup. I mean, his, this view of really competing on decisions per second becomes important in the world of AI, right? You're seeing it right now when we speak, we are being crushed by all these bots uh, in social media that are basically trying to manipulate our thinking and we're responding with humans who are asking for permission to go solve this. Who do you think is gonna win? <laughs> right, we got a very unfair <laughs> advantage, right? Anytime you got like people making a thousand, you know, bots making a thousand decisions per seconds and humans making one every minute, that's an unfair war. So I think it's a total end for war, but I think the, the, the one thing that I, I think gives a human an edge just cause I'm, I'm, I'll be Tom Peters and pro humanity is that we can make very few decisions, <laughs> We're all voting for the humans. right? We can, yeah, totally. We can make very few decisions, but if they're really clear ones, then they actually then can then help the AI run rampant. Right. So sometimes I think, again, it's about this, you set up the infrastructure, you set up the sandbox, and then you want to let people just raise. Yep. Just like how the AIs want us for permission, as much as I don't want our talent asking for all this for all this permission, and I think and I think that the the one of the tricks is deciding what's a one way door and what's a two way door, and then yes. two way doors. Who cares? You can back up. Just go like crazy. Decide, decide, decide. One way doors are really hard to come back on. Well, then maybe you slow it down. That's a great point on velocity and velocity of decision making. Yeah. Things that you can't take back. You want to go a little bit more precise, more slow, more thoughtful. Um, yeah. But you, you, you're talking about. I mean, you're t we're talking about generations of people that are work like remember having to ask for permission instead of beg for forgiveness. How do you change that culturally? Great. Oh man, uh, that's a brilliant question, Ray. So one, there's I have a favorite quote from Charlie Munger, which is that if you didn't destroy one of your best loves, loved ideas each year, it's probably wasted year. So one, I think if this is like that, that idea is one to just get destroyed. And then the thing that I've learned the most is, is it's like, it's like a six to nine month gestation period where for people actually start realizing it's actually safe here to do what the org design was set up to do. So the people who joined from the outside actually first play it like any other typical org. And then they keep watching that actually it's okay. That's not a typical org. And then, so I find it six to nine months of just being in the house and recognizing what we say is what we mean. We've heard you in your talks reference Bill Joy's law, no matter who you are, most of the smartest people work for someone else. Uh, you know, so you're, you're one of the most successful entrepreneurs we've had on our show. Um, and so how do, you, how do you maintain that beginner's mindset, uh, the level of humility that's required to think like a Tom Peters who still has a ladder climbing shelves to read books uh, how do you how do you stay teachable, especially when you've had the success you've had? Because you've been on a rocket ship for decades, and uh, so I can assume. I mean, I, I I can only assume because I haven't had your rocket ship experience. That at some time you must feel invincible, or like you're the smartest person in the room, or you know the smartest people are here with me. Uh, so how do you keep uh, yourself grounded? so you can you know change and you can learn unlearn relearn and change yourself which again i think is a superpower um wow <laughs> so for me i think my <laughs> i think that i recognize that i'm always surrounded by smarter people wherever i go so i'm reminded all the time of my humility and then <laughs> uh and then i think 
And then I think that the, the other part is having a growth mindset from Carol Dweck from Stanford. And so this idea, in fact, I always think about if I can be the smallest fish in the biggest pond, it means I get the maximum growth trajectory. I have the maximum space to grow. So I always want to construct an environment of which I actually have the most to grow. And so if you, if you just keep kind of constructing your environment, it forces you or you can actually, you know, construct an environment where actually you're the really big fish in a really small pond and you have nowhere else to go. So to me, it's it's environment construction. Are you writing a book? Are you are you thinking about writing a book? I mean, your, an <laughs> no, no, your, your answers are ridiculously rich. I'm looking for co-authors. I'm looking for co-authors. There you go. Well, you guys. I don't know which direction you're looking at. <laughs> no, happy to help if you want to do anything. It's uh no, it's definitely. I mean, I think you got something here. Permissionless organizations. I think there's a piece. I think we got a comment here talking about AI ethics. Let me find who wrote that. I think uh Yeah, ethical use Elisa's. of technology. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's uh yeah. It's, it's going to challenge society and businesses, I believe, for many, many decades, because as Ray said, if you have machine learning algorithms that can make decisions on two, three thousand vectors simultaneously, whereas us, even the smartest folks in the room, you know, maybe four or five dimensions simultaneously, it's, you know, to reverse engineer how we get to logic and not be able to do so because it's a deep neural network and the logic there to help you reverse engineer just isn't there and even going through the process of reverse engineering you're dumbifying the algorithm to be at human level which means you're not optimizing the power of ai how, how, what is your advice as someone who's building ai powered mobile applications in terms of understanding should this be made uh, the ethical use of the software and will, will it serve betterment of society and how do you guide that as, as a ceo yeah, I think it's tough, and uh, I think it's a be beautiful question. I kind of believe in the procrastination principle a little bit. In fact, until we kind of iterate, we don't even know, we don't even know we don't know what we found. So yep. sometimes I actually believe you have to iterate a bit, so then you can you can come at it. Yeah. And I'm a big proponent of of X AI, which is explainable AI. So you do all this extra work, so you can have some insight into the box. But you're right on some of that stuff. It's hard to get that X uh, to get the X AI, right? And so I think that you have to procrastinate a little bit on the answer because then you can actually then tame the beast of which that's been created. That's yeah, very good back point. to your point about lanes, one way and two way, right? Think about it. Once we have the transparency, you get the X AI and the explainability. Then it's about where do we reverse things that we learned that were wrong, right? Because that's also very hard to unlearn too in these yeah. systems and building the design for that. So so people worry about that. So that's pretty uh, it's, crazy. It's, 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 it's yeah, not, yeah. There's, there's actually all these. Oh, sorry, Val. I was just saying, there's all these attention techniques to say inside my network. I want you to unlearn, right? So there actually is all these advanced techniques to say, actually, I think you've overlearned, and I want, I want you to actually reduce your attention. Yeah. And so I think like, it's tough, though. I think it's tough. Yeah. Or, or like supply stock pre-March, you know, who would have thought that these items were more useful? RV, you know, bikes, toilet <laughs> yeah. paper, hair dye. Yeah, nobody ever orders this much of that stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, oh, I, I am sure uh, supply chain models are being rewritten as we speak, for sure. Uh, and, and given the fact that you now have uh, different uh, dimensions in terms of your how you spend your discretionary income, some is based on access, you know, going to a movie or a hotel, you know, you just didn't have access. Now, safety is now a criteria, relevance, 
So you have different uh, layers of how you process and you decide where you spend your money, which is impacting customer experience, which is growing e-commerce, contactless payments, drones, autonomous vehicles. So incredible acceleration of certain technologies as a result of what we've witnessed in the last three, four months. You're right, no algorithm, Ray, uh, would have had these considerations in 2019. You're, you're absolutely you're absolutely right. Final, my, my final question to you, Michael, advice to, so we had the co-founder of Square on the show, uh, Jim McKelvey, oh, wow. and uh, one of the biggest takeaways uh, in our interview with him was that he said he they didn't know what they were doing. Uh, like him and Jack, they were not, you know, uh, fintech finance experts. Um, he, as an artist in St. Louis, he wasn't able to sell a 2,000 piece of art. So that led to like, we need to fix this. People need to be able to transact. So his advice was, don't disqualify yourself when it comes to tackling unsolved problems. By definition, if the problem is unsolved, it means there are no experts. It means you don't have experience. And he felt many entrepreneurs who are looking to build robots and pencils, success stories, sometimes lose to imposter syndrome and lose to self-doubt because they feel that their expertise and experience isn't quite there, even though they're going after unsolved problems. And I thought that was brilliant advice. So uh, any advice you have to entrepreneurs who may be the 20-year-old version of you or the 30, <laughs> who, 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 may not, who may not have the experience you have now, but are motivated to go and, as Steve Jobs said, you know, put a dent in the universe. What advice do you have for these folks? Love it. I'll give you a couple of points. I'll give you a couple of points. One was when I started my first company, I had an entrepreneurial seizure, which means it wasn't well thought out. I had no idea what I was going to do. I didn't. I didn't. That, is a startup. I didn't that, was, that was my startup or whatever, right? And, and think about it. There's no permission there. No one stopped you. In fact, I drove to the corporate registry and for $400, I had a company and I had no idea how to even answer the questions of which the registry lady was asking me. Wow. I just said, well, what does someone else say? I'm like, I'll do what that person says. And they're like, did you bring your checkbook? I'm like, no, we're gonna need to go do that at the bank. So I think I think this whole permission to start your company is you don't need it at all. And I think there's a couple of things that, that I've learned is one is demographics are destiny. And so if you can tie yourself into a wave, everything will be a lot easier. Mm -hmm. uh, another one, and this is a Warren Buffett one, but there's three boxes. So one of the things I did when I was a young entrepreneur, there I would, because I was an engineer, hard problems i felt like i was attracted to them and when i think through a business lens there's in out and too hard and if the problems look like just too hard i just put in the too hard box come back to them later or whatever um and then probably just two more quick things one is maximizing evidence that you learn per dollar right you're back to speed of decisions so how much evidence you get per dollar and then i'll just end on if you're if you're executing your startup you're lucky enough that some people will follow you right and they're really picking the leader and so there's a beautiful quote from Cicero, which is gratitude is not only the greatest of all virtues, but the parent of all others. So I think about that all the time. I have to be maximally grateful for the opportunity to pursue the business, for the opportunity for people who will come along on the ride with me. And there you go. Michael, you can, so follow Tom, you can follow Tom Peters anytime. <laughs> I'm, I'm not wait, falling wait, after. Wait, I'm wait, not falling wait, after you, Michael. Yeah, I'm never yeah. falling after you. That's uh, that's, that's the way we're gonna we, look at this one. That's why we didn't have a third guest. We always have three guests, but we figured after Tom and after you, 
it would just be a disservice to anybody. <laughs> you guys are you guys are kind, kind, and kind. <laughs> oh, good tieback, good tieback. We are here with Michael J. Sikorsky, CEO and co-founder at Robots and Pencils. You can follow on Twitter at MJ Sikorsky. Are you related to the aircraft carrier, aircraft company? Apparently, it's like, apparently, apparently, it's a great, great uncle. It's a great, great uncle. All right. One of the top innovators, top growing companies, top startups in North America, but more importantly, awesome dude, awesome team. We know so many customers of yours and clients. Thank you so much for being on the show. Happy Friday. Michael, you're amazing. Stick around if you want to be on the green room. We're going to do some credits and we'll jump in from there. (laughs) All right. Vala. Holy. I can't say that. (laughs) You know, I think think you can't say that. It was... uh, yeah, holy, holy, holy smokes! Uh, <laughs> you know, th- this is why uh, Fridays is uh, our our favorite time to uh, to, uh, to 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 get together because uh, that was an entrepreneurship masterclass and a humanity masterclass. Actually, both were humanity masterclass, and you and I and our audience are better for it. Uh, that was just simply amazing. Um, I, I'm a loss for words, but let me just let me just explain who's on next week. <laughs> Episode 194. Yeah, yeah. I think we're I think we're about a dozen away from 600 interviews in four years. Uh, so I'm really proud of the work you and I have done. Hopefully, it's adding value to our audience. Next week, we have Brian Solis, who I think all of you know, global uh, innovation evangelist at Salesforce. He's a good friend of. I don't know Bill if everybody Freya. knows he's at Salesforce. So uh, yeah, this yeah, is, yeah. This is so, debut for. Yeah, so we'll definitely uh, we'll definitely uh, get a sense of what the you know the last sixty days has been for Brian. I think he's he's been with Salesforce for a couple of months now. We have Matthew Halliday, who's a co-founder, vice president of products at Incorda. Matthew's an exceptional guy. Please follow Matthew on on Twitter. He's got a he's got an incredible soul and spirit. He's a great writer. Layered delay, if you're trying to follow him at Laird Delay. Yeah, Laird Delay, exactly. And you know, I just I just find uh, him to be super smart, super generous, and has all the characteristics that Tom and Michael talk about in terms of high EQ. Uh, you know, I admire smart people, but you know, he's he's just a really good good person, and uh, I know it because we've met in person and. We engage on social, and he's just someone you should follow. And of course, one of our favorite guests, return guest, Nicole France. He, uh, she's vice president, principal analyst at Constellation Research. And we're going to talk about customer experience. We're going to talk about you know post-pandemic playbook and how companies can build you know meaningful relationships with their stakeholders, uh, employees, customers, business partners, communities. She's amazing. Always, always uh, uh, just a delight to have on the show. Now, in addition to this, and usually we don't talk about special shows. But we have non-Friday scheduled shows. Ray and I felt that there's just a lot we need to share uh, during this time where we, you know, we're still quarantined before we get back to you know, the, the, the next norm. So we have a special edition show on Tuesday, June 16th at 4 p.m. Pacific time, 7 p.m. Eastern Standard. So it's later in the day. And it's on 9 a 9 a.m. Australian time, if you're in Australia. I wonder why. Yes. And the reason why Australia time, we have the Honorable Malcolm uh, Turnbull, who's the 29th Prime Minister of Australia as our guest. We also have Lucy Turnbull, uh, Honorable former Lord Mayor of Sydney. Uh, and uh, we have a special guest host, Dr. David Bray, inaugural director of Geotech Center and executive director of Commission of Geopolitic Impacts of New Technologies and Data at the Atlantic Council. So Dr. David Bray will help Ray and I co-host uh, the 29th Prime Minister of Australia and the Mayor of Sydney. So we're going to talk about globalization, U.S.-China relationships, and many big topics 
that will certainly define uh, the economic business world of the future post-pandemic. We also have a special edition on Tuesday, July 7th at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 p.m. Eastern Standard with John Hagel, management consultant, speaker, author, executive director of the Centers at the Edge think tank at Deloitte. And John Hagel is a pioneer in terms of designing organizations for speed and movement and flow. And he's just a big brain <laughs> keynote speaker and author, <laughs> you know. So we have a, just a special edition just with Mr. Hagel so we can learn from him on uh, July 7th. So two special edition. Come back next Friday. I'll remind the teams of these special shows. Ray, closing remarks after what was, uh, you know, one of our best episodes of 2020. Uh, you know, I'm not going to add any other fluff to this. Be kind. <laughs> That's all I can say. Be kind. If it's Friday, it's Disrupt TV. Thanks for joining us. Thanks, audience. Um, we are starting to look at sponsorships. If you're interested, we're probably going to look at a few very, very strategic sponsors uh, who value the thought leadership, who value the editorial independence, and really ability to talk about what we talk about today. Um, as we go forward, um, welcome to one of the largest audiences for enterprise tech and, uh, of course, other leaders that are impacting startups, organizations, leadership, business, innovation, and, of course, be kind. So thanks a lot, everyone. Mm -hmm.